You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. We have learned much in the last 10 years about the neurobiology of sleep. What do we now know? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jennifer Lynch, a board-certified neurologist and sleep medicine specialist who practices at the Farrell Duncan Clinic in Springfield, Missouri. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Dr. Lynch, please give us the basics on the sleep-wake switch. Basically, we have two major arousal pathways that, whether they're on or off, helps control our three states of being. We can either be awake, we can be in one of two types of sleep, one of which is REM sleep and one of which is non-REM sleep. These pathways are ascending arousal pathways from the brainstem If both of them are on, we are awake. If one of them is on, and this would be the monoaminergic system, which ascends to the thalamus and controls the thalamocortical pathways, if that is on, we go to REM sleep. If they're both off, then we are asleep. Okay, so awake, REM, non-REM, those are the main states we have to think about. And there are varying degrees within non-REM sleep, and it's really sort of a gradient. It's a gradient that we see when we're viewing sleep on EEG, and it's a gradient that we see also neurochemically, basically through thalamic gating, so that when we are lightly asleep, there's not a lot of thalamic gating in these thalamocortical pathways are not completely inhibited so that we can awaken relatively easily if a doorbell rings. When we get into delta sleep, a sleep state that's more common in children and decreases with age, we can be very deeply asleep. Anybody that's carried a one-year-old infant in from the car and put them asleep knows that they are very profoundly asleep and that gating to the thalamus is really tightly locked at that state. So that's why my kids don't wake up when the phone rings? That is why your kids don't wake up with the phone rings, correct. I, you know, I long to sleep like my kids sleep with their arms above their head and they are just out. So where does GABA fit in with this whole sleep-wake switch? GABA is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in our brain. There's also another inhibitory transmitter called galanin. Both of these are important in sleep because they send inhibitory outputs to these ascending pathways so that with GABA, which activates neurons in the VLPO, the ventral lateral preoptic nucleus, when they send inhibitory output to these pathways, it helps allow for sleep and helps to transition from wake to sleep. So can you think of the VILPO then as the sleep center in the hypothalamus? It really is. It's sort of an off switch for arousal systems of the brain. And so it seems like it's no accident that many of our sleep medicines actually work on GABA. Not an accident at all. Actually, GABA is probably the major system. All of the benzodiazepine effects work through GABA, and it really controls most of our sleep states. So is it possible then to be awake and asleep at the same time? Ideally, no. But certainly we can be lightly asleep, and that can be because we have not fully inactivated the system. Vilpo neurons do degenerate to some degree with age, and this may 
lead to less inhibition on the arousal system, letting that thalamic gating not be as effective so that we have many more arousals during sleep. So older people sort of are awake and asleep at the same time. So that's what happens when the switch malfunctions? Yes. If the switch really doesn't stay on or off, that can be what happens. Dr. Lynch, what role does orexin play in this system? Well, orexin acts as a stabilizer. It sort of keeps the switch on so that it helps maintain arousal and wakefulness. And the Vilpo tends to be a switch that helps turn off the orexin neurons, allowing for sleep. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jennifer Lynch. We are discussing the neurobiology of sleep. Now, Dr. Lynch, I, I think orexin is really fascinating. Um, and, you know, if you know a little Greek, of course, orexin is named for orexia, which means appetite. So how is this appetite neurotransmitter working in the sleep system? This was actually an orphan protein before it was discovered back in 1999. And interestingly enough, had different names based on where it was discovered. And orexin won out, uh, and that's what we talk about today. Orexin was felt to be something that would have control of the appetite. And when they injected into the hypothalamus in rats, they did see some changes in eating behavior. However, they were not dramatic and not persistent. What they did see in these mice was that in orexin knockout mice, they had these funny cataplectic attacks. They would just collapse. And when they recorded their brain waves, they found that they had gone into sleep. Actually, I, you know, the Erexin story is probably worth talking about for a minute. I think it's one of those great stories in medicine. And in my understanding of how this goes is that there was a group at Stanford and also in Texas both looking at really different things. And the story goes that they discovered it pretty much simultaneously, independently, and actually published it, I think, within a month or two of each other. So we have orexin and... Hypocretin was the other name that it was initially called, and it was called that because it was basically thought to be an endocrine function originating out of the hypothalamus. It was very interesting. It was simultaneously discovered in mice using the orexin model, and at Stanford in dogs, Doberman specifically, with narcolepsy. They found that in orexin knockout mice who did not make the protein, they developed this cataplexy and were found to have sleep. In the dogs, it was the receptor that was found to be not working. And so either end of the system uh, had a similar effect with cataplexy. Uh, and this is really how we came to understand narcolepsy and what role orexin has in that. So it has an effect not just on wakefulness and sleep, but interestingly enough, it has an effect on REM and non-REM sleep as well. So that when orexin is dysfunctional, it allows these switches to flip-flop back and forth so that sleep-wake is not well-regulated and REM-non-REM is not well-regulated. If we go back to those three states of being, wake, REM, and non-REM, and talk about narcolepsy, Really, the problem is that these boundaries between these three sleep states are not existent anymore, so that 
people with narcolepsy will experience something called cataplexy, where the REM paralysis sets in. Uh, usually this is triggered by laughter, but can be triggered by any other strong emotion. Some people will actually injure themselves related to these falls. Other people may have it very subtly, where it's just a chin drop with humor. Other things that can uh, intrude REM into a non-REM state would be sleep paralysis. This can occur either as you're falling asleep, but most typically upon awakening from sleep, and they are paralyzed. They literally cannot move. They can still breathe because in REM sleep, we try not to paralyze our breathing muscles. So that tends to be a little bit diminished, but generally spared, uh, and may last anywhere from seconds to minutes. Normal people can experience this as well, but they have to be horribly sleep deprived. Other things that would intrude would be the visual or auditory imagery that we see in REM so that people might have very startling auditory or visual hallucinations as they go to sleep or wake up from sleep. And I've had people really insisted that these things were real and thought that there was noises outside of their room or dreams were real and they would frequently have to ask people that they trusted, did that happen? Because it seems so real because it's occurring out of wakefulness. You know, I think it's an important thing to bring up that narcolepsy most physicians think is so rare that you may never even see it in your career. But actually, if you look at the epidemiology, narcolepsy is as common as multiple sclerosis. So probably you have many narcoleptics, or at least a few narcoleptics in your practice, if you have a large practice, that you're not aware of. And if you ask people about these sorts of issues, um, they're likely to find it. Yeah, there's one common feature that everybody with narcolepsy is going to have. They're going to be sleepy at unpredictable times. And not everybody with narcolepsy will have cataplexy. And because they think that people will think they're crazy for the other things, they may not bring those other items up. I've talked to some of the folks that do military research. They're, of course, very interested in keeping their soldiers awake. And they're actually working on trying to deliver orexin orally so that it actually gets into the brain and keep people awake in a much more sort of natural way. So I think we'll hear a lot more about this in the years to come. I sure hope so. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Lynch. We've been discussing the neurobiology of sleep. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.